Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So that brings us to step seven, where we combat the impact of our suffering. And one of the real challenges of talking about practicality and suffering is that as soon as we get practical, it becomes that relapse point where we start to take responsibility for it. And we begin to think, if there's things that I could do that would make this better, then if I had been doing them all along, this would have never happened. And we do that little mental flip that allows us to take something from a suffering paradigm and put it back in a personal responsibility paradigm. We're not against a personal responsibility paradigm. We're going to come back and we're going to address a whole other nine steps where we walk through and say, what's the tone of addressing it that way? We just don't want to do a bait and switch here at the end when we get to the practical part of addressing suffering. I'm going to give you 20 strategies. Do not think of this as a checklist of 20 things you got to do. That would overwhelm you. We go back to the beginning where we're like, if you try to do too much, it's just going to be overwhelming. It's going to give you a sense of failure. It's going to make things worse. Think of this like a buffet. Okay? You are going through selecting those things that you think best fit where you are right now, your personality, the struggle and resources that you have available. Okay? So the first one is just where we left off in in the last step. Talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. That's going to be a key skill. Even in battling depression and anxiety that's rooted in suffering, taking every thought captive is still very important. Stop saying it doesn't work. That's huge. Yet, oftentimes, saying it doesn't work is a misguided form of self-protection. Again, I don't want to get my hopes up. I don't want to try something and it not give the relief that it promises. But it is the kind of mentality that will trap us in passivity. It leads to isolation. Uh, it, It fuels so many of the dynamics that just become a fortress around our experience of depression and anxiety. Uh, allow for contributive causes and contributive remedies. Again, we said early on, depression and anxiety has a lot of different things uh, that, that can impact it. And so just because there's different causes doesn't mean that there's one cause for this person and one cause for this person and one cause for this person. Uh, there can be several things. And sometimes that's why depression and anxiety is confusing to us. We go, you know, I've, I've been through a stressful season at work before, and it didn't affect me this way. And so that can't be the reason why I'm particularly down right now. Well, are there other things that are going on that would make that stress and these things make it harder to come up out of depression and anxiety? It, 
And I give you kind of four questions here to help you think through that. And it's kind of what I would encourage you to use to, to weigh through these different options. First question has to do with plausibility. Is it reasonable to expect that this approach, whatever it may be, would alleviate part of my depressive, anxious struggle? You know, as I evaluate something, does it correlate? Does it fit? Just because it's in a notebook and somebody says it from a stage doesn't mean it's a good fit for me. Does this fit me? Prioritization. Are there other approaches that stand to alleviate more of my depressive, anxious struggles? Okay, you may hear several things. You know, let's just start with the one that seems the best fit that you think, ah, this would give me the best chance at uh, having the most ground gained. Strategy. Uh, which of these strategies will I implement first and for how long uh, in order to provide an accurate gauge of its effectiveness? Here's one of the things that I see people do. With depression and anxiety, they tend to be at low stages of motivation for an extended period of time. And then they kind of rally up, and they get really motivated, and they do several different things all at once. And then they have a little time period when they feel better, but they don't know which of these things actually accounts for things getting better, and they don't know which one to keep doing. And so... When things get really bad, they go to the doctor, they get medication, they start eating better, you know, they exercise a little bit, uh, they go to a counselor, they start reading a book, they do all of those things. And then they don't quite, do I have to do all of these things forever and I'm kind of the one man band doing, I, I can't keep it all up. Well, okay, that's where having a sense of strategy and prioritization allows me to see how much relief am I getting from each of the things that I'm doing so I understand which ones are most important to have a part of my long-term strategy and which ones just kind of short-term help me get a leg up on what's going on. Uh, and then finally, uh, holistic. Am I willing to consider other approaches that address other causes after I've maximized the relief I can gain from my first strategy? Um. You know, sometimes it's as if we get married to one strategy and we feel like trying something else is betrayal. Um, well, no. Um, it, okay, let's, as we look at it, if there's multiple areas of our life contributing, let's figure out what we're going to do to address in those different areas. Um, medication. I think that is a, a legitimate option for how we address um, depression and anxiety. Uh, in our talk on mental illness, we'll go through how do we do that uh, wisely so that it doesn't become the panacea one-size-fit-all and those kinds of things, but definitely it can be. Uh, I give a quote here from Katherine Green McCrete. Um, it sounds like a negative quote. She's pro-medication. I'm medication neutral. But it's just her being honest about her experience of how she sometimes felt. She says, at times... The medicine feels less like weapons against depression and mania and more like Saul's heavy armor on young David. She said, it was helpful. She would tell you, it was very beneficial for her. But she said, there are times I just don't like it. I don't like how it makes me feel. I don't like the side effects of it. I don't like thinking that this is something that I need to take. She said, just everything. She said, I don't like it. Um, she says, hope. Uh, when we are in a state of severe mental illness, hope is far from us. Uh, this is why we need the Scriptures and community of faith. Uh, they contribute faith and hope to us 
uh, as from a well that we cannot reach. And so she says, it's both. She is somebody who she says, I, medication is an important part of me being a healthy person long term in my life. She also says, this community of faith, and there's times when I feel like hope is just in a place that I can't get to, and it's my friends and it's my community of faith who can access that well and bring me that water of life that I need. But, and, and it's both. It's not either or. Um, identify where your choices matter. Um, that is so important. Engage your relationships. Uh, I will say it again. One of the most important things that I hope this presentation does is begin to connect us to one another in the area of talking about depression and anxiety. Because if depression and anxiety is only something that you can talk about with a counselor in a box, in a private room, under the bounds of confidentiality, then even help itself adds to the stigma. I'm not against counseling. I'm a counselor. Um, but when we begin to think that that's the only place that we can have these conversations, then the aid is becoming part of the problem. Now, when we ask, how do we engage relationships healthy? I think these next three things help us see that. Ask people to pray for goals more than relief. You know, because sometimes if we say, just pray that I feel better, uh, it, um, it doesn't quite click the way that we want it to. But if I begin to ask them to pray for the things that I am actively engaged in that would help me combat my struggle, uh, then they feel like they can be a part of my life. So I say, pray that I would consistently take my thought captive when I experience depression and anxiety. Pray that I would be disciplined in my diet and exercise and sleep patterns so that I don't allow depression and anxiety to make itself at home in my life. Pray that I would face each occurrence of depression and anxiety as an opportunity to trust God. Pray that I would be honest with you about my life so that I don't feel alone even in our friendship. Those are the kinds of things that when, when you ask somebody to pray for you in that way, then they can pray for you without feeling like they are kind of capitulating to a passivity. Uh, and they feel like they're a healthier part of your life. Allow those that you invite into your life in this way to challenge you. Sometimes in the midst of depression and anxiety, uh, our emotional fragility can become contagious. Uh, we begin to train others to think if they, if they challenge us, then we're going to fall apart. But we need that. We need to be encouraged and we need to be challenged. And we need the kind of relationship that allows for both to happen. And again, I hope that's where this kind of resource allows us to have a balance between those. Serve others. Uh, one of the best examples of this that I can remember. I had been counseling someone uh, who struggled with a prolonged and deep depression. Uh, it had clear biological origins. Uh, it was uh, rooted in hypothyroidism. Their thyroid just didn't uh, produce enough of, um, of what it needed to. And so the Synthroid uh, that uh, this person was on, they took the medication faithfully. They went to the doctor. It was monitored. Uh, but the synthetic just didn't quite do what the real thing did. And she consistently battled depression. Uh, and so we would talk and there was a lot of hopelessness and despairing of life. Uh, and she came in one day and she was beaming. Uh, and I was like, you tell me the story. 
We're not going to start with questions. Talk. Um, and she told me this great story of the area of profession that she was in. She came across someone who was in need. Uh, and she was able to use her gifts to serve that person. And it was just immensely satisfying to her. And there was a kind of joy and satisfaction that came in that. It didn't make all the depression go away. It didn't make all the sad things untrue, kind of J.R. Tolkien style. But it gave her a way to meaningfully connect and enjoy life. To hear the words, thank you. Uh, to hear, you just make my life better. I couldn't imagine at this moment if you hadn't have been a part of it. Some of those kinds of statements that when we quit serving others, we quit hearing those things. And life just becomes kind of pointless. And so serving others is not just something that we do because we have Serve RDU and other kind of initiatives around here. It's because it's good for our soul. Um, forgive. Uh, now, sometimes forgive can come across as one of those heavy-handed, you should forgive people, that's what you need to do. But we often forget the context of us forgiving is always suffering. I don't ever forgive unless I've been sinned against. And when other people sin against me and that brings harm into my world, that's a form of suffering. And forgiveness is one of the healthy ways that we process suffering that prevents us from getting locked down in bitterness and animosity and those kinds of things that are corrosive to our soul. Um, shield against depression and anxiety becoming a part of your identity. You know, one of those things to remember, there is a you that experiences depression and anxiety. If you were depression and anxiety, you wouldn't know it. There is a you outside of depression and anxiety that experiences these emotions. And so even using the language, my experience of depression and anxiety, when I go through a bout of depression and anxiety, it is a way for you to create a bit of distance that is more than semantics that separates you from your experience. Worship. You know, one of the things that I don't think we always see about depression and anxiety. Depression and anxiety is a form of awe. Depression and anxiety says, life is big. It's bigger than I am. I don't have what it takes. Wow! It's big. Part of what worship does is it reorients our soul that says, yes, depression and anxiety is big. God is bigger. And it, it just, it reframes that story. And one of the beautiful things about corporate worship is that we are in a room full of people singing the same song, living the same story on many different journeys, but coming to those same truths. And we realize the thing that our soul desperately needs is what all of these other people need. And it doesn't just reorient us of like, yes, depression and anxiety is big, but God is bigger. It also says I'm on a journey with a bunch of people who need that same truth. And I'm not alone on that journey. And those things are so vital for a healthy soul. Realize that you're in a battle and you must fight. Let go of the should. Um, this is where that contentment side of the battle with depression and anxiety comes in. 
Contentment is just joyfully living within your limits. So for the person with chronic pain, that um, means being satisfied when you've done what you can do at the end of your physical limits. I can remember talking with someone and they were a grandparent and experienced chronic pain. And their grandchildren loved to go for rides in the wagon in the yard. And the sweet little girls would say, do it again, Grandpapa, do it again. And that moment of recognizing I've come to do all I can do in a way that isn't, I'm really going to pay for it later, and I'm going to be down for weeks if I keep going. And that's where letting go of that sense of should. A good grandparent would carry the wagon further. That is an important part of letting go of a false should. Uh, The new mom who thinks she should be able to do everything that she could do before she had children. Can somebody say amen to that? Yes, Uh, the person who retires and feel like they should be able to be as generous as they are when they were working. The adult who's caring for ailing parents and feels like they should have the same capacity as they did before. There's just different seasons of life where our shoulds are going to adjust and we have to be able to live within those because if we carry them over from one season to the next, we're going to be marked by depression and anxiety. Questioning your sense of interpretation. Here's a principle that if you've come to these, you've heard me say before. We tend to fear, we tend to see first what we fear most. So if I fear rejection, what is it that I am seeing and hearing and listening for in every conversation? Rejection. If I fear failure in every opportunity that comes up, what is it that I'm looking for and anticipating in every opportunity that comes along? Failure. Again, as a kid playing in the woods in Kentucky, I'd walk along. I had a fear of snakes. And as I walked through the woods, every crooked stick was a snake until it proved otherwise. When we have experienced depression and anxiety and that suffering story has come forefront, we see it everywhere. And we have to have a level of humility that is willing to doubt that. Um, Look for good in people and situations. Read a good book on suffering. Uh, Be willing to sacrifice some of the pseudo-comforts that depression and anxiety has provided. This is a hard one. And I, I address it later in the seminar because hopefully at this point we have a level of trust that you're allowing me to broach this subject. But to a certain degree, depression and anxiety has to work. Even if it dysfunctionally works, it kind of works for us a little bit. And there's certain comforts that we're going to have to let go of. Certain things that we have avoided, that we have fended off, that we haven't had to address uh, because of our experience. And if we let go of our depression and anxiety, we're going to lose that. And part of combating the impact of our suffering is being willing to do that. But if they were really comforts, we wouldn't be here. Don't confuse boredom with depression or uncertainty with anxiety. That's important. Oftentimes when we've struggled with being depressed for an extended period of time, anytime our emotions go low, we say, oh no! And so, you know, somebody's been depressed for an extended period of time and then they get bored. What's the difference between boredom and depression? I mean, they're kind of both down there and... um, 
honestly, if you sit somebody up on a CT scan and you check all that kind of stuff of what's going on in the brain and chemicals and that kind of stuff, most of our emotions aren't that neurochemically different. If you take what's going on in somebody's brain when they're at a ball game and they're screaming their head off and they're amplified, and you take what somebody's going on in somebody's brain when they're scared to death and they're kind of screaming in fear, it's the same neurological fireworks. It's the meaning that we've placed around it that's different. And so when, when we have battled difficult emotions for an extended period of time, Anytime our emotions go low, we think it's depression. It may be boredom. I may just not be funny. It may be right now, you're going, this just isn't that interesting. You're not depressed. I'm just not good at what I do. It, you could be sitting with a friend in a restaurant and they go off. They're gone a little too long and you begin to get concerned. And you go, oh no, am I getting anxious? No, that's compassion. That's empathy. That's something that allows you to love your friend well. We'll talk a bit more about this aspect of the emotions and the personal responsibility paradigm when we go through it. But if we confuse every time our emotions go low with depression, every time they go up with anxiety, we're always in trouble. And so being able to differentiate, that's important. Spiritual life. Sometimes less may be more. Um... You know, if we're saying we, that the answer to depression and anxiety is peace and joy, we begin to ask the question, by what standard? How much is enough? If we simply say, more peace than I would have now, then anything short of a manic high is not enough. Because we always got to go up. If we say more peace than the average person would experience then 49% of the population is always going to be depressed. If we say more peace and joy than I deserve, then anything north of hell should be okay. None of those work. So here is uh, my suggestion. Our answer should be, more peace and joy than I would have without Christ in this moment. This is where I think the Christian standard of emotions has some buoyancy. It, it can ride the up and down of where we go. There is not some flatline emotional experience that when he says be anxious for nothing, it means we can never be troubled. Paul talks about having anxieties for all the churches, and God seemed to be okay with it. There is this sense of emotional buoyancy when he says that. He says, I have more peace and hope for those churches than I would have without Christ, but I'm still a little troubled about them. I can promise you, when my kids get a driver's license, I am not going to be okay with that. I hope I have more peace and joy in the midst of that than I would have if I didn't have Christ. Um, what is the end game of all of this? Um, it... It can't be that we never experience depression or anxiety again. If that's the standard, then perpetually there's going to be one of two outcomes that we forever measure life by. Either we failed God or God failed us. If we think the goal of overcoming depression and anxiety is total abstinence from depression and anxiety, then we go through life with one of two paradigms. Every time we get nervous. 
Either we failed God or God failed us. I don't think that works. So here's what I would advocate. Our goal uh, is to accept that depression and anxiety will be a part of our life. And then commit to live in a healthy, God-honoring way in light of that experience. In order to illustrate that, uh, I'm going to tell you one of those don't judge me parenting stories. Okay? And it's okay because JD tells all those all the time. Okay? Now, um, so my oldest right now is playing tackle football. Uh, it's our first season of tackle football. And uh, the other day at practice, he got pitted up against the biggest kid on our team for an hour. Okay? This kid is a head taller. He outweighs him by 40 pounds. He is a great kid, which means he never takes a playoff. Okay? So my son is right there against him. And for an hour, it was down, sad, whoop, pick you up, take you off, boom, plant you in the ground, come back, wait for you to come back. And coach was just working on running plays for an hour. This kid was at tackle, my son was at defensive end, whoop, boom, for an hour. They had two water breaks, they came back, they did it again. He was crying, I'm coming up behind him, I'm like, bud, coach does not expect you to win this battle. He does expect you not to give up and learn something. You got this. Um... And yeah, I mean, we're crying. He's tired. He's waking up sore the next day. And, um, it, you know, we talk about perseverance. We talk about some of those kind of things. We come to the next day of practice. It's one of those really proud parenting moments for me. When coach calls them to run out, what does he do? He runs right back out in front of Devon. And he is right there ready to go again. And on the way home, this is what he says to me. He said, Papa... Devon had to hit me four times before he knocked me down. Because we talked about staying low. He said, he hit me once, I stayed low. He hit me twice, I stayed low. He hit me the third time, I came up. He hit me the fourth time, he finished me off. But he had to hit me four times before he finished me off. That is an example of acceptance and commitment. He knew this wasn't a battle he was going to win right in that moment. But he said, Papa, how am I going to get stronger if I don't go up against the big kid? And there's a sense in which we look at him and we go, you know what, that's right. Um, and so there's times when we come up against life. We live in a big world. Again, the world's big and we're small. Fear is a normal part of the human experience. But we come to that with a commitment to live healthy and God-honoring in each of those situations, recognizing that God is doing great things in those moments as we do it.